It's The Rest Is History. Hello, I'm Frank Skinner and welcome to The Rest Is History. I've always felt that the height of optimism, the greatest show of faith in human nature, is to buy a jigsaw from a charity shop. <laughs> in this show, we consider the jigsaw puzzle of history. I have two or three random pieces and I don't know where they fit in the main body of the puzzle. Luckily, I have a woman with me who can put the whole damn thing together without even looking at the lid. Professor Kate Williams. So, Professor Kate, who's helping us pick up the pieces tonight? Tonight, Frank, we have the marvellous Holly Walsh and Richard Herring. So, um, can I ask before we begin, do you have what one could call history credentials, you two? Um, well, I did study history at university, though... That's, I'm, that's pretty good, I'm isn't using it? study in the broadest sense... I went to university to do history. Yeah. And then when I got to university, decided to eat crisps and get drunk. <laughs> what about you, Holly? I did a degree in history of art. So. It's got history in it. It's got history in it. I'm good at looking at pictures, but that doesn't help us on radio. No. <laughs> I think you're a person who paints word pictures. <laughs> anyway, let us commence. And now, Not All Bad, where we find out if history's most notorious villains had their redeeming features. When I was a young man on the lookout for girls, I deliberately hung out with a mate who was uglier and less funny than me, so I benefited from the comparison. And this week, we consider a man who used a similar tactic to avoid looking completely evil. Yes, it's Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you know about um, Benito Mussolini? Um, strung up from a lamppost at the end. Yeah. Start at the end. Let's work backwards. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I like that. I'm going <laughs> to yeah, have flashbacks. He was face face down, so that everyone could see it was definitely him. So he was, face he was, down. He was hung up by his legs from a from a lamppost, so that mm. they could see who he. Horrible who he was. pictures. His brain sort of fell out. You know when sometimes you hang a pair of trousers up and forget you've got change in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was that kind of uh, phenomenon. <laughs> I don't know if we should have started with this. Do you? <laughs> Anything else? What about you, Holly? He was Italian. Italian. Yeah. He was a friend of Hitler. Well, why? which sounds like a euphemism. Yes. <laughs> like a friend of Dorothy. <laughs> it used to be a schoolyard song, which went. Um, no, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was worse, if anything. It was. Um, it was to the tune of "Whistle While You Work," but I'm not going to sing it because we haven't paid for the rights. <laughs> um, it was "Whistle While You Work." Hitler is a jerk. Mussolini bit his weenie. Now it doesn't work. <laughs> his, own, his own or Hitler's? I, I, I always assumed Hitler's. <laughs> I, was, I thought we could at least applaud that he stopped the Hitler dynasty from continuing by damaging his reproductive <laughs> organs. So you're saying that Mussolini should go down in history as Europe's greatest contraceptive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, now, the other thing I know, before we come to uh, Professor Kay, who obviously knows everything, I'm pretty certain that when Mussolini came to power, which was before Hitler, that Hitler wrote to Mussolini asking for a signed photograph... And Mussolini never replied. <laughs> Honestly. Now, you could say that's one plus. If we have a plus and minus column for Mussolini, that's a plus because he snobbed Hitler. Or you could put it in the minus column. Did he make Hitler think, right, I'll show you what an evil dictator can be? <laughs> I don't know. So, um, 
Kate, I did Hitler write to Mussolini and ask for a signed photo? You know, Frank, you're right. Oh, <gasps> results. Yes, yeah, so a young Hitler wrote to Mussolini asking for the signed photo, and as you say, Mussolini didn't reply. But he did later. In 1931, just a few years before Hitler completed his rise to power in 1934, Mussolini signed, finally sent the photo. <laughs> what an opportunist! He's <laughs> <laughs> going to be big, this bloke. But in the 1920s, wouldn't you have to just take a photo in order to send it? You know, they didn't have, like, mass reproduction of photos. You would have, must have, to send that photo, Mussolini would have actually had to sit down, get a bloke behind No, I bet, he had, I bet he had, uh, had a pile eight, by, eight by tens that he sent out. <laughs> like headshots. Sure. It would have been really <laughs> expensive then, though. I resent it now, and it's quite cheap. If someone uh, many... writes to me and asks, can I have a, a signed photo? You've got to get the photo, you've got to pay the postage... And then someone's going to put it on eBay and make maybe ten, fifteen pounds. <laughs> but I'm not saying Hitler was an autograph on. <laughs> I'm not saying he hung around the stage door. Mussolini didn't know in the 1920s. Did he? he didn't. It's oh, it's Adolf. It's not like Titanic where people are going. Oh, we'll, I'm sure we'll hear more of this, Mr. Picasso. He doesn't know. <laughs> no. He doesn't know the future, does he? So when Hitler writes to him, he doesn't go. Oh, that's Adolf Hitler. I better reply to him because he's going to be big in 15 years' time. To him, it's just another stupid Austrian decorator. <laughs> bit dismissive. <laughs> so was there, was there anything good about um, Mussolini? Anything that we... I mean, he famously... Didn't he make the trains run trains on time? Run time? No. <laughs> so Italians now will say the trains are always late because they want to prove to themselves that they're not under the time of Mussolini when the trains did run on time. But actually, it wasn't thanks to him. They did improve, but this was during the 20s, and really, by the time that Mussolini came to power, the work had already been done, so he really reaped the benefits of other people's work. So oh, he right. didn't make the trains run on time. He didn't send out signed photos to young people. I mean, we're struggling to find something good. I knew he was going to be a tough one, Mussolini. He, also, he did also try and straighten the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> was it known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa back in Mussolini times? Well, it was the tower in Pisa, and he thought... But it was leaning at that It was time. leaning, but it's, got, it's le- lent more as the time has gone on. But the well, we all was, have, dear. <laughs> <laughs> he felt that this wonky tower gave out the wrong message about Italian engineering and tried to get it to go straight Italian up. Italian men, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's what Superman does in uh, the film when he, go, when he turns evil. He straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa when someone's getting a... And he's had pizza, which is a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, uh, uh, when, when people are trying to take a photo, he comes in, because he, you remember he goes evil in Superman 2, I think, doesn't he? I mean, this isn't really the remit of this programme. But uh, <laughs> he comes well, in Superman and straightens the... qualifies so, so that's an evil thing to do, because evil Superman does it, so that's definitely evil. It's not yeah. like a good thing to, to mm. take away. That's the he only good thing Pisa has. He obviously has. didn't do it. It didn't work. The tower threatened to collapse, so they had to stop that activity. Have you got any pluses for Mussolini? Well, I think, as you say, we compare him to Hitler. So if you look at the world <laughs> level... <laughs> that pretty much means everyone's of, good if we yeah. start comparing exactly. 20th century dictators, we've got Hitler at the top having killed or enabled the killing of about 12 million people. Mm. Keep it light, Kate. Yes, keep it light. <laughs> and then Mussolini... The bo- can we say at the bottom? Can we say Hitler's at the bottom? Well, the top of evil. The worst. Okay. If there's an evil league table, he's Is there, top. like, evil top Trump? I think Hitler does win. Yeah, he would win. I He'd think win. so. And then we've got Mussolini, who's killed uh, less than Saddam Hussein, but more than Fidel Castro <laughs> at 300,000. So it's a comparison. Well, um... I, d- I don't think he passes, does he? What's I don't think he's got anything good, uh, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, also, if we say he's got good things and then we turn later people down... Yeah. 
I know, we're setting the bar pretty yeah. high. Mm. OK, this feels a bit like Room 101. I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm, afraid I'm not going to put Mussolini into Room 101. I am going to put him in. This is the sort of thing on the show I would, I would not put him in. I'd, I'd put in kids' shoes that, with lights on them <laughs> instead of Mussolini. But, no, I've, we have failed. I would say that um, Mussolini, if not all bad, is pretty much a bad character. I think all bad. I think we've yeah. okay. established nothing good. Mussolini's... All, the, only, the only good thing about him is his brains fell out. So, um, Mussolini, all bad. Now, it's a tragic fact that every joke has its sell-by date. What used to be funny is undermined by the passage of time. For example, one of my favourite jokes ever is this. I went out with a mermaid once. She had a fantastic figure, 36, 24, and three and six a pound. <laughs> a joke virtually destroyed by decimalisation. <laughs> but what other great jokes have suffered from this phenomenon? We find out in the round I call Jester Year. Oh. That's another joke gone down. <laughs> Clement Attlee, who was the uh, Labour Prime Minister after World War II, I don't know if you know anything about Attlee, but he was kind of famous for being boring. You know the way John Major was famous for being boring? The most famous one is that um, someone said to Churchill that Attlee was very modest, and he said he's got a lot to be modest about. <laughs> Which is a good, a, a good joke, if, if cruel. But my favourite is somebody said that they were at number 10, an empty taxi um, turned up, and Clement Attlee got out. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that is a great joke, but obviously, you, if you did that to an audience now, you've got to give them a bit of background. <laughs> you guys must have had examples of this when you do topical jokes about the news and they go brilliantly, and then one night you realise that history has stabbed you in the back and they're not funny anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, well, I did have a... I don't know if it's a broad... Most of my jokes aren't broadcastable. This one vaguely is. I had a joke about um, the riddle of the Sphinx, which you would think would stay pretty good all yeah, the way through. Yeah, not that topical. Uh, so it was what walks on four <laughs> legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs in the evening, and Oedipus said it was man because of baby crawls and old man has a cane. And I argued that wasn't true. Uh, and I said, what walks four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs in the evening is Paul McCartney and his wives. Uh, but um, <laughs> just mathematically accurate, it's not making any judgment. No. Uh, but he's ruined it because he's got married again. So He's ruined the he's riddle ruined of the my Sphinx. <laughs> What about you, Holly? Are you I a don't really. Yeah, I'm not no. really a topical person. I was in America recently, and I I told one of my favourite jokes that someone once told me, which is, um, "What's the best thing about Switzerland?" I don't know, but the flag's a big plus. <laughs> and, and the uh, and and no one got it. And then we had to like Google the flag. Oh, that's not good. And when you, once you're googling a punchline, that's when no. it's, it's ruined. Once you're adding footnotes. Yeah, it just got really complicated, and I wish I'd never done it. But it was one of those things where you're like, I think probably. 30 years ago, when people did learn flags, the Euro Eurovision and sometimes the Olympics are the only times when I see most national flags. That's true. I remember there was a, an IRA joke, which I suppose you could modernise and give it to a modern uh, terrorist group. But there was an IRA bloke who got killed planting a bomb and they said that when they found his head, the fingers were still in the ears. <laughs> Can I just confess, I had a joke. It wasn't just a joke, it was a song. I'll just to the very first bit, you'll see why it doesn't work anymore. What happened to that nasty man? So pally with the Taliban. Oh, 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 Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs>
You see, the trouble is people do know what happened to him <laughs> now. So you just... I can't do it anymore. Can I just do one, one tiny bit more? All music's banned by the Taliban, so he always misses the ice-cream van. That was my... <laughs> that was my favourite bit. But also, comedy just changes so much through time. So when you look at Victorian jokes, they're all really weird puns that, you know, they have to put brackets afterwards. You look at Punch and Victorian principal yes. jokes are all, you know... I mean, I can't... They're so awful. And then Roman jokes, if you look at Roman jokes, they're just... You can't even make head nor tail of them because obviously they're translated sometimes. And... Although, I went to the um, Pompeii exhibition. Oh, yeah. And you would love this, Richard. Yeah, no, well, no, they no. had <laughs> They had so many penis-based sort of drawings and murals. I mean, I think, in a way, everybody still loves a, a graffiti of a penis. OK, so, so Professor, <laughs> tell us about some jokes from the past. It's interesting when you see how jokes have changed over the years. Uh, the Victorians were well, it was more of a satire about the time, but some of those jokes are pretty good, especially the rhyming jokes. So when Prince Albert came over to marry Queen Victoria, they were very dubious about him. They thought he was something of a gold digger and didn't... Well, they were, they were rather unconvinced that her passion for him was, was correct. So they had a rhyme that they said, uh, Here comes Albert for better or worse, for England's fat queen and even fatter purse. Mm. It's good, I like it. For the Romans, there were lots, lots more jokes, lots more gags. I mean, they had their equivalent to the Englishman, the Irishman, and the, you know, they had their version of that. And then you, what, was the, their, what nationalities did they use? Uh, well, they were particularly... They liked to have some jokes about the Thracians. The Thracians? Yeah. <laughs> were they like... <laughs> uh, did you hear about the Thracian invention of the blow-up dartboard? <laughs> <laughs> It worked, though. You don't hear much from the Thracians these days. Yeah, those jokes really worked. Yeah. Thrac a lot of the Thracians were ginger, so they got a lot of the ginger jokes. So there was ginger jokes Ginger there. jokes, I'm afraid to say. There were ginger jokes for those as, as persecuted minority. And the ginger jokes in particular were on stage. So on the Greek stage, the slave, who in the Greek play was usually an idiot, uh, he was a buffoon and lazy and, and talked back and had no idea what was going on. So he was the joke in the play, and he was always wear a ginger wig. Most men have ginger beards. Yes. Why? Just stay out of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now for shared history, where we look at great double acts from the past. Burke and Hare are, of course, the two things that spring to mind when one sees Boris Johnson. <laughs> More importantly for this show, Burke and Hare are the two great pioneers of the recycling industry. <laughs> but what's their story? So what do you guys know about Burke and Hare? I think they might have been Scot Scottish. Yes. Well, there wasn't one of them Irish. They were in Scotland, mm. certainly, in Edinburgh. One yeah. of them, and I don't know which way round, one of them dobbed in on the other one when they got caught and survived, and one of them is... his skeleton is still displayed in the Edinburgh... Medical place. Well, I've mm. seen their death masks yes. are in the Edinburgh, um, the, the Scottish. One National of them's Portrait a death mask, and one of them's a life mask, though, because one of them isn't, well, he is now dead, but he wasn't dead at the time they did that. See, I thought they'd have to have killed them together, otherwise they'd just keep digging each other off. <laughs> <laughs> so they stole bodies, did that was it? They were body snatchers. As I understand it, and like I say, I'm always prepared to be told I'm wrong by the professor. 
that, yeah, that, that they stole bodies for the specific purpose of giving them to um, the medical schools in Edinburgh so that they could research anatomy and various illnesses. And, and then murdered people as well. And when, I they, think... when they got fed up of stealing the bodies, they started killing people. I think they charged about £10. But, but they... why did they... I mean, there must have been a tonne of dead bodies around there Scotland some, at that time. There was some law that... It was very difficult to, for the medical schools to get bodies, so they had to... There was one particular doctor who, I think he was... Oh, is it Knox? Robert Knox? Who was the one who took all the bodies. I think he got away with it. I don't think he did anything really? wrong. I think What's I might be a, right. A receiver of stolen bodies. <laughs> I still don't understand how they went from stealing bodies to killing people. Well, it's easier, isn't it? Less Why? digging. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there must have been so many graves in Scotland. And if, yeah, I think it's, it's the be freshness. Fresh, yeah. It's the freshness of it. So if you can get, you know, if you, they, I think they ran a guest house, didn't they? One of them. I mean, I might be getting this from the Simon Pegg film, uh, but I think one of them ran, ran a guest house and they just started killing the guests. <laughs> and I think, but I think the one who did die, I think they did use his body in one of the medical schools as well. I think that they are responsible for massive advances in orthopaedic right. science. Oh no, that was that was Birkenstock. <laughs> <laughs> Do we, have, do we have anything right about Birkenhair, Professor Kate? You have a lot right, Frank. But the thing we don't have right is the fact that they didn't rob graves. What? What? <laughs> Birkenhair didn't rob graves? No. They didn't even get that far. So they had the bodies and just never buried them and just sold them. But how did they get them? Well, Richard was right saying that one of them had a guest house. So they're both, as you said, they were Irish immigrants... They were in Scotland, there was this huge demand from the medical schools, Hare had a boarding house, and what they did was they got their people in the boarding house completely drunk, and then they killed them, and then they sold them to the school. It's a bit Sweeney Todd, isn't it? And as you say, the school, no questions asked. As you said, Robert Knox, they didn't prosecute him, he took the bodies, and, you know, this body fell off the back of a lorry. The first person they sold was an army pensioner who died of old age, owing them four pounds. And they thought, I know, let's make loads of money by selling him. So they sold his body for seven pounds ten and made this gigantic profit of three pounds ten. And after they did that, it was game on. The gloves were off? They were. Am I I right in thinking a Scottish pensioner's about 38? If they die of natural causes, though, it not doesn't seem. Yeah, that so seems, bad. And, and there's a deal, then, and it's acceptable to sell a body. That seems fine. But I think I heard that they sold someone, and they, and that person got recognised by the medical students. Is there something? Is that true? Well, what what actually happened was um, the the last victim that the, the medical school were a bit concerned. Where did she go? The last victim. So they had sixteen killings. So there were sixteen people they killed. Wow, really? And. The last victim was this woman called Mary Doherty. So what they tried to do was pick on people who were vagrants, who weren't going to be missed. Mm. But unfortunately, they got, as is the way of lots of serial killers, a little bit too confident. They picked on Mary, and poor old Mary was spotted, she was missed. And then in the medical school, some of the students saying, oh, isn't this this woman who went missing? So that was, as you say, how they got caught and how they got captured. And they were, they were brought in, and Hare gave evidence against Burke... And Burke was the one who got hanged for it all, whereas Hare disappeared and Knox, the anatomist who took the bodies, he wasn't prosecuted and he was hanged in 1829. And as you say, he was actually later used for medical science at the school. I always wonder how you get... You know, like, when murderers 
find another person to murder with? How you have that conversation? I think in their case it started, let's go and... Do you want to dig up some bodies? Yeah. And they go, what should we... What if we didn't dig them up? So it's quite easy. They've started. That's how you get in. You do one crime and yeah, then you start. Hold on, hold on. You're up. taking like the first. Do you fancy digging up some <laughs> dead bodies? That's an okay thing to yeah, say yeah. to somebody. It makes about. sense in that, in that world but they were living in. That's a very in. good point, Holly. It is quite a thing to, to broach. Whenever you see a doubles team at Wimbledon, I always think if one's much better than the other, I always think, oh, God, how do they ever summon up the courage to ask him to be their partner? <laughs> That's nothing compared to. Let's kill some people. <laughs> were they around? I'm, I'm not sure what their dates were. were. Were they around at the same time as what we would call the, the Scottish Enlightenment, sort this, of 18th century? This is the early 19th century, but it's actually after the Scottish Enlightenment, which is 18th century. So no, but also in the Scottish Enlightenment, um, um, medicine went through major advances in Edinburgh, didn't it? So I assume mm. that they were tied up with that, but they were later. They were later. So I went to a talk in Edinburgh about the Scottish Enlightenment. Is um, this your own Scottish Enlightenment? No, no, this was the, the one in the 18th century. And they had a bloke in who was an absolute expert on it. And they had questions at the end, and somebody said, oh, do you think there'll ever be another Scottish <laughs> Enlightenment? And he said, in the most crusty Scottish historian way, he said, the future is not my period. <laughs> I recently went to Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire, the burial place of Henry VIII's last wife, Catherine Parr. Much fuss was made about Henry having six wives, but Catherine herself had four husbands. We'll doubtlessly hear about them all in the round I've called Four Under Parr. Oh. Shut up! It's <laughs> just the name of the round. <laughs> so... Henry VIII, six wives, I couldn't have named them. I just went to Sudley Castle because there was an a Easter egg hunt and I went for that. <laughs> and um, I just got... I thought, oh, I'll have a look in the castle. And then I had no idea Catherine Parr is actually buried there. That's all, I thought she'd be in Westminster Abbey. She's just in this private home. And in a full-length coffin, which not all the wives of Henry VIII... <laughs> <laughs> And it's kind of incredible. And there's a book which she wrote, I think, and Kate will tell me if this is wrong, I think she's the first woman in Britain to have a book published in her own name. So, um, Kate, uh, Catherine Parr was actually quite a remarkable woman, wasn't she? She was a remarkable woman. As you say, the, the last wife, she was the one who survived... And you're completely right. She was the first British woman to have a book published in her own name, and indeed the first Queen. Really was Catherine Parr the one that they found her? You mentioned her coffin, but did they not find her, and she was still Alive. in quite good in quite good condition? Is that? Are you trying to say that? hot? <laughs> <laughs> I think they reburied her upside yeah. down, accidentally or something. Right. When they took her out, she was you know sort of stuck to the lid. Oh. <laughs> Quite gruesome, this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right? She was buried... She's actually buried, as you say, in Sudley Castle. Mm. And that was actually quite common, that you wouldn't necessarily bury a queen in Westminster Abbey. You'd bury them. So in, there's other queens in private homes? Uh, there is... Well, Jane Seymour's in St George's Chapel next to Henry VIII because, of course, she's his favourite because she provided him with that long-loved son. Oh, so we did have a favourite. Could we put together from things that Henry have said a, a sort of a wives' league table? <laughs> I think we could. So number one, I'd say number one, number one is Jane Seymour, and then I think I would pretty much say number two is Catherine Parr. OK. 
the other thing I gathered from Sudley Cass, and I, you know, I read a couple of stickers that you get on the stuff, is that she, after Henry died, she, I think she was... You know that there are certain women and they, they, they like sort of horrible men? You know those yeah, women? Yeah, treat them mean, keep them cute. Yeah. I think she married quite a, a horrible bloke. And this is the story, as I remember it, that he, they got married and then uh, her stepdaughter, Princess Elizabeth, who was going on to be Elizabeth I, he kind of um, had a bit of a dalliance with her while he was married to Catherine Parr. So I think he was a real... So the, da- so the stepdad had a thing with the stepdaughter? Yeah, well, not even that. She, she wasn't um, her daughter. Oh, right. It was one of the other This is like wives. a Jeremy Kyle episode. <laughs> well, you know, Henry different VIII. times, though. You can't judge. It's, uh, it's like the 1970s. We can't judge. <laughs> but Henry VIII is like a Jeremy Kyle episode, isn't he? Yeah. He did kill two of his wives. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think that they would really qualify, maybe, for a Christmas special. <laughs> good strap line on the bottom. Kill two of his wives, yeah, exactly. but he wants the third one back. Exactly. <laughs> and then they have a test to see yeah. whether she was beheaded or not, and the results are after the commercial break. <laughs> I just wanted to say, you're so right about Catherine marrying the bad boys. So she was married twice before Henry, so usually he preferred these young, innocent virgins. So by the time we got to Catherine Parr, he'd been a bit burnt by, well, five wives and it not really working out, the quest for love. So he came up with Catherine Parr. She'd already had two husbands, and he married her, and then... After he died, she was left the richest woman in England. And so this chap called Thomas Seymour, who was trying to get power... So th- first he thought he'd marry Mary, the future Mary the First. Then he thought he'd marry Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth. Couldn't have either of those. So he thought, I know, I'll marry their stepmom. And so he married Catherine six months after Henry died, which was seen as very, very um, shocking for her to marry so quickly. She had to do it in private, and the uh, king, Edward VI, was furious with her. Mm. But she, he wasn't a good husband. He and and, and did he cavort with the young Princess Elizabeth? I'm, I'm afraid he did. I'm afraid he did. She was only 14. Oh. She was living under the roof. And Different Catherine times. was pregnant at the time. So it was all pretty shocking. I, can I tell you, this is, although this is it's my joke, it's something that made me very happy. I was doing a tour of a, of a stately home, a National Trust property, <laughs> and they were talking about who, who'd live there. And I said, uh, and this is the home of Henry I and Henry II, isn't it? And the guy looked at me, couldn't work it out. And I pointed, and if you look down this um, corridor, you could, there was two of those Henry Hoovers. <laughs> <laughs> Still smiling in the gloom. <laughs> uh, thanks to Professor Kate Williams, my guests Holly Walsh and Richard Herring, and thank you for listening. And the rest, as they say... This history was presented by Frank Skinner and Professor Kate Williams. The guests were Holly Walsh and Richard Herring. The producers were Mark Augustine and Justin Pollard. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4. Green sleeves was all my joy. Green sleeves was my delight. Green sleeves was my heart of gold. And who but my lady, green sleeves? Now, <laughs> did Henry VIII write green sleeves? No. <laughs> Next. <laughs> <laughs>